We're in 1 Kings chapter 20 as we continue on. Uh, let me go ahead and pray and then we'll get into, I love chapter 20. Chapter 20 is a, uh, oh, I'm in Chronicles. That's the problem. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> there, there we go. Uh, chapter 20 is a great, great chapter in 1 Kings. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time together and we thank you just for bringing us all here safely. We thank you for those that have been traveling out of town over the week and you've brought them back safely. Uh, God, you give us everything. You give us our life, our breath, our going out and our coming to. And so, Lord, we're just so grateful for your hand upon our lives. And, Lord, now we want to pray for the family of Nancy McKay as they are saying goodbye to their mother and grandmother and uh, we just had, and wife. We just ask for you to bring comfort to, to her family and uh, be with them. And, Lord, we thank you that she's entering into glory to be with you. And so, Lord, now as we enter into your word, we ask for you to teach us and uh, we ask for you to speak to us and let us be uh, not only hearers of the word, but doers. And so be blessed in all that we do. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And I did forget to announce that, that uh, Nancy McKay from, she comes second service. If you've ever gotten a hug on a Sunday morning, it very possibly could have been her. Uh, She had a stroke on Thursday and 80 years old, and uh, today they were taking her off the ventilator. So it's been on the prayer chain, but you can keep praying for the McKay family. They could uh, obviously use the prayers. They say goodbye. Okay, we're in chapter 20, verse 1 of 1 Kings. Um, Just before we start reading, let me catch you up to where we're at. Israel, which is the northern ten tribes of Israel, has suffered a, a great drought for the last three and a half years. Uh, it's been a hard time because of their ungodliness and their idolatry. Oh, by the way, guys, you're in the splash zone here, just so you know. Uh, so, so yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So, uh, so they've suffered uh, this drought, and Elijah, uh, obviously it all culminated to uh, Mount Carmel, where Elijah faced off with the prophets of Baal. God gave a great victory that day. Not a victory to Elijah, but declaring victory of who God is. That was, that was the key there on Mount Carmel. But of course, Elijah the prophet was God's servant who was there speaking on behalf of God to the people. Well, as we saw last week, after last week, Elijah was uh, pretty defeated because he didn't get the response he was hoping for, which was Israel turning to God and turning away from their prophets. But we read last week how God comforted Elijah and not only told him that there are 7,000 servants in Israel who have not bowed a knee to these foreign gods. And on top of that, God gave Elijah a co-worker, Elisha. So we ended the chapter last week with Elijah walking by Elisha and throwing his mantle on him and saying, basically, you've been chosen to be a prophet of God. And that's where the chapter ended. Now, chapter 20 we would kind of assume that we'd pick back up with Elijah and Elisha, but we don't. There's no mention of Elijah or Elisha in chapter 20. Uh, Instead, there are some prophets who are mentioned, but there are probably some of those 7,000 who had not bowed a knee to the foreign gods who had been faithful to God. And we never get their names. They're unnamed prophets. And and we're going to see that God doesn't need you to have a big name or a great name to use you. I mean, oftentimes we kind of associate things with, oh, the big name, oh, that person can do it. God, uh, use Billy Graham. <laughs> you know, God can't use me. 
And, uh, and we don't want to think that way. We want to recognize that God just calls us to be faithful and continue on. So that's where we're picking up in verse 1 of chapter 20. Now, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him, with horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Then he sent messengers into the city of Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine, your loveliest wives and children are mine. Now, the situation is pretty dire for Ahab, king of Israel. You have this Ben-Hadad. Now, Ben-Hadad is, uh, there were a few different Ben-Hadads reigning uh, in over, uh, uh, he's an Aramean, Aramean king. And there were a few different ones who reigned, each named Ben-Hadad. So we're not sure exactly whether this is Ben-Hadad the first, the second, or the third, uh, all of which ruled during this period, the ninth century B, uh, B.C., but Ben-Hadad, uh, this could be the, the one who Basha uh, hired in 1 Kings 15. We don't know. Nonetheless, though, he's done something quite miraculous. Notice it says he brought 32 kings with him. So he's been able to gather kings up together in this coalition force to attack Israel and Samaria and uh, make war against them. But the notice that he gives to them is pretty, uh, I mean, uh, it's shocking. Your gold, your women, your silver, uh, everything you have, all your wives or your children, they're mine now. And uh, that's a pretty disheartening message to receive that somebody just comes and says, I'm going to take this from you. And, and not, not to mention, you've just come out of a three and a half year drought. Uh, there obviously was probably weak in Israel quite a bit. Um, and they weren't uh, at their full strength either. So, so uh, Ahab, verse, uh, <clears throat> the next verse, uh, the next part of the verse says, And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. Okay, surrender. Here's the white flag we're throwing up. They're yours. Uh, now, Ahab thinks that this is going to stop the war. It's going to save Israel. We're, you know, I got to make a peace treaty. I can't handle this kind of force against me. Well, look at verse five. Then the messengers came back and said, thus speaks Ben-Hadad saying, indeed, I have sent to you saying, you shall deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time and they shall, shall search your house and the houses of your servants. And it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put it in their hands and take it. So Ben-Hadad is not at all okay with this treaty. He sends word of, I want these things. And, and Ahab says, okay, you can have them. Then he comes back and says, well, you know what? I want more. Isn't that what bullies and tyrants do? If, if you adhere to them, they take more. And I think we've actually really experienced that in a legitimate way over these last two years as they say, here, just give us this, and then they're going to take more. You know, uh, this governor of California, he's evil, and trust me, he is evil. Uh, he's telling everybody to do mindful me mindfulness meditation, and but don't go to church. Okay, I'll tell you right now, that's evil. He's supporting abortion, that's evil, and on and on and on. But they don't want to just get you to adhere to one thing. They want to take more from you. And anytime you think there's a bully, a tyrant, a king, anybody like that that says, 
please just, I just want this and you adhere to it. Trust me, they're going to ask for more. And it's because they're ungodly, godly kings, godly servants, God himself doesn't just keep taking and bullying and, and extorting from people. But uh, these, this man does. So Ben-Hadad says, no, no, I'm actually sending my servants tomorrow and they're going to go through and everything that you like, they're just going to take. So they're going to be watching the things that you like. And as soon as they see like, oh, he kind of likes that. Okay, we're going to take that too. We're just going to strip Israel down. So look at what Ahab's response is. Verse 7. So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives, my children, my silver, and my gold, and I did not deny him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, do not listen or consent. So, too bad Ahab didn't do this the first time. Now, there's something about Ahab's character that we can kind of see. Remember, Ahab married Jezebel, and Jezebel was the one who really led Ahab off into idolatry for the land of Israel. Jezebel is the one who's kind of controlling things and calling the shots. Ahab is a king, no doubt, but it seems like Jezebel, when she speaks, Ahab does. And uh, she's kind of a, a controlling factor. A, a Elijah, when he had finished his victory at Mount Carmel for the Lord, uh, she sent word to Elijah saying, you're going to die today. You know, and that was Jezebel kind of taking on things. So Ahab doesn't seem like a king with the strongest backbone. He seems like a king with, uh, that uh, when you kind of put together a little profile on Ahab, he, he's, he's no pushover, but he just doesn't, doesn't, doesn't really seem to have great conviction about things. Seems like Ahab really loves pleasures more than having strong convictions about standing for things. So he finally goes to the, the, the elders of Israel, which he probably should have done first, and he tells them what happened. And notice how the elders of Israel said, do not listen or consent. Don't do this. It's actually worth us fighting this battle than to just let him come in and take everything. So verse 9 says, Therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king all that you sent for to your servant the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him. Then Ben-Hadad said, sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. Now remember this, Ben-Hadad breathes out this threat. May the gods do so to me if I don't wipe you out, Ahab. So remember this threat that he gives because the Lord God is going <laughs> to show Ben-Hadad what kind of a man he is. So just remember this verse in uh, verse 10 here because we're going to, when we get to the end of the chapter today, we'll see if, uh, how Ben-Hadad uh, responds. So uh, it says, so the king of Israel uh, answered and said, tell him, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. And it happened when Benadad heard this message as he and the kings were drinking at the command post that he said to his servants, get ready. And they got ready to attack the city. So now Ahab actually gives a very good statement. And this is actually a wise proverb from Ahab. I, I, there's not a lot of good things we can get from Ahab, but this is one of them. Let not the one who boasts... Uh, look at this. Uh, Let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. Okay, the idea is like don't start boasting about victory. 
until after the battle's over. So let not the one who puts on his armor start boasting about how tough you are and how great you are and what a great warrior you are. Don't, don't do that until after you've taken off your armor because that's when the battle's over. That's when you've actually had victory. Uh, so don't start boasting and declaring victory because you don't have it yet. So that's one actually pretty good proverb from Ahab that he gives to us that uh, we shouldn't go about boasting before there's actual victory. So verse, uh, so Ben-Hadad heard the message. Now notice what Ben-Hadad is doing. He and the kings are getting drunk at the command post. They receive that first message. They automatically think, all right, we've done this. We've got this covered. Let's just start the party early. They're drinking. Uh, now verse 13. Verse 13. Suddenly a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, have you seen all the great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ahab said, by whom? And he said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. Then he said, who will set the battle in order? And the prophet answered, you. Then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces, and there were 232 And after them, he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. Not a great army to show up with, okay? 7,232 men to fight this battle. Not a great answer. But notice what happens. God shows up to Ahab. Now, if you're like me, the first question you're asking is, wait a minute, isn't Ahab the bad guy in all this? Isn't Ahab the one who's encouraging the worship of Baal, who's been putting prophets to death with his wife Jezebel, who's been chasing after Elijah, who hates Elijah? Isn't that the bad guy of our story? Why is God helping the bad guy? And I want to tell you this. We often approach Scripture, and we even approach our own lives, with if God blesses, that means he approves. And if God doesn't bless or help, then he disapproves. And I want to tell you that that is a poor way to approach your life. Uh, Because what you're doing is saying that I get good for doing good and I get bad for doing bad. Now, certainly there are consequences when you do wrong, when you do evil, there are consequences. But there's also... God oftentimes rewards or takes care of those even when they're doing wrong. Now, it doesn't mean that they're going to escape judgment. Those who walk in wickedness and walk uh, in their own understanding and they choose to not walk with the Lord, they choose not to believe, it doesn't mean that they're going to escape that judgment. But just because someone is wealthy or someone is doing well or God has, has given some blessing or gifting to an individual or a nation or anything like that, it doesn't mean that you have God's complete favor upon you. Uh, because remember, this is for God's namesake. And there's not just Ahab in Israel. There's also at least 7,000 others who have not bowed a knee to the prophet, the gods of Baal. Uh, so there's others in Israel, not just these ones that, that Ahab represents more than just himself. Uh, so we often want to try to start questioning God on why he does certain things. And Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. 
and my thoughts than your thoughts. So you say, well, well, how do I know that I'm pleasing God? Right here. Get into the Word. God tells you everything. The Bible is all sufficient for everything you need for life and godliness. If you want to know what pleases God, be here. Don't look at your circumstances and say, well, wait a minute. I thought I was living to please God. Why do I have cancer? Or why did this evil befall me? Or why did this happen to me? Or why did I suffer this calamity or whatever in life? Because I thought I was trying to please God. Well, that you suffering a calamity, you being sick, you having to deal with the same things in life that everyone else does in this fallen world doesn't necessarily mean that God is not, you don't have God's favor. Actually, it can mean that you are favored by God, that God actually is entrusting to you to go through this time of suffering so that you might declare his glory during it. So don't be so quick to say that if, if I get good, then I'm doing good. If I get evil, then I'm doing evil. I think here uh, God is showing up with this unnamed prophet to, to rescue Israel and declare himself as God. Now, it doesn't mean Ahab's off the hook by any means for his wickedness, but actually what we see is God is continuing to give Ahab and Israel an opportunity to repent and know who the Lord God is. So uh, this prophet shows up and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this with this small army. Now, I want to point this out to you. Ahab says, well, wait a minute. By whom are you going to deliver us? Notice where Ahab is looking. God has just said, behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Okay? So God says, I will deliver, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Okay? And Ahab says, well, by whom? You know? I'm looking left. I'm looking right. The, 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 the right response is, okay. <laughs> you know, but Ahab can't, he's such a carnal man. He just sees what's in front of him and says, well, well, well who? Are you sending the Egyptians, God? Are you sending this army? Are you sending that army? Who are you going to do it? And I love that God says, then he says, I'm going to deliver it. And who, who is, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. So I'm going to bring over these, I'm going to use these young leaders of the provinces, these people that you have. And, and then who's going to lead them? You are, Ahab. <laughs> now, oftentimes when we are facing challenges, and I, I think this is even true in, in churches especially. In churches, um, we like to look outside for leadership, for talent, for ministries. Uh, and I love here at Calvary Chapel, we look inside for God to raise up leaders. Uh, we don't like to go around looking for uh, the, the, the right worship leader or the right this. We actually like to pray and ask God to provide that individual. And generally, generally we like to look inside and say, well, God, you provided this fellowship. Who in this fellowship have you called and who have you gifted? And who are you raising up to do that ministry? Uh, because it's one of those things that God, if he calls, if he equips, that's the right person for the job. And oftentimes we want to look outside. We want to look to someone else. We, well, I can't handle this ministry on my own. Or I can't do this. Or I can't, you know, so on. Versus just trusting the Lord and saying, all right, Lord, who will you provide? What, what do you want me to do? What steps should I take to move forward? And so Ahab has said, uh, God, I'm going to do it, uh, Ahab, and I'm going to raise up these young leaders of the provinces, these 232 men, 
and then uh, you're going to lead them and their army, the 7,000, into battle. So uh, verse 16, so they went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. The young leaders of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol. And the patrol told him, saying, men are coming out of Samaria. So he said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. And if they have come out for war, take them alive. Let me read that again. If they come out for peace, take them alive. If they've come out for war, take them alive. Does that sound like a drunk man speaking? I mean, talk about terrible advice. If they're coming out for war, take them, he has no idea what he's even saying. This, this guy's getting totally uh, <laughs> wasted, and he's just drinking. And I'll tell you right now, uh, the better thing is not to get wasted, okay? <laughs> just to stay away from that. Uh, don't, and definitely don't make war decisions, right? <laughs> so... So anyway, he comes up with this terrible advice, and the men obviously don't even understand him. Now, can you imagine going out to war and saying, okay, they're trying to kill me, but I have to take you alive? How do, I, how do we do this? So verse 19, then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them, and each one killed his man. So Israel's doing well. So the Syrians fled. And Israel pursued them, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Assyria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. Then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, Go strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do. For in the spring of the, the year, the king of Syria will come against you. So God gives Ahab this great victory with these 7,000 7, and 232 men, he gives them this victory, and uh, Ben-Hadad flees, and they get a, a break. Okay, but there's a message from the prophet of Israel, they're coming back in the spring. Well, look at Ben-Hadad and all his drunken wisdom. Verse 23, then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we, but if we fight against them in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. So do this thing, dismiss the kings each from his position, and put captains in their places, and you shall muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. Than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. So Ben-Hadad gets this advice from his people that, well, they're the god of the hills. Their gods are the god of the hills. And that's where they're powerful. But Ben-Hadad, if we would have just stayed in the valleys, in the plains, we would have had victory. Okay? Now, you and I look at this and go, they are dumb. I mean, we're talking about the Lord God. You guys are idiots. Right? Uh, because we're talking about God. Because they, they tended to think that gods had territories and a god couldn't cross over a territory. Kind of like if you were to fly over to Asia and in India they're worshiping their millions of gods. And you, you would think that, oh, well, which god has space here in India? Well, that's Ganesh. Ganesh has more power here. But if you go to the south, you're going to find 
the, the monkey guy, I can't remember his name. Anyway, uh, he's got more power there. And that's where you got to stay within these gods and worship those gods for those areas. But definitely don't bring the Lord God because he has power in the USA, not over here in India. Well, let me just tell you, ask you this question. First of all, how is that a definition for God? A God who's held captive by men's borders. You know, a God who's held captive by the worship of the people, right? If there's no one there to worship that God, then that God is weak. You know, we look at this and go, this is foolishness. God certainly, if God is God, and we're, we're going to say that the definition of God would be a maximally great being, that means a being who exists and is, has every great quality to the maximum uh, amount, uh, then this being would not be contained by borders. This being would not con- be contained by people. In fact, this being wouldn't even need people to exist. So we start thinking that way. But you know what? The sad thing is, is I think we tend to do this in our own lives. We, we start to think that, well, God cares about this issue, but God doesn't care about this issue in my life. God cares about me going to church on Sunday, but God doesn't care about me getting wasted on Saturday night, right? Or God doesn't care, or God can't help me in this little thing, but I'll save God for the big things, right? We, we compartmentalize God and we say, all right, God, this is how you know to work. In church, people start saying, well, God knows how to work through this way. This is how we must worship. This is what we must do. And God only works through that method. Don't dare break out of that box or do something else. Definitely don't ever talk about the Holy Spirit because people get weird when we talk about the Holy Spirit. So let's keep God in this nice little box. And this is how God's allowed to operate. We do the same thing just with different topics. And I want to I just challenge you right now that God is not the, just the God of the hills. He's the God of the plains as well. And if you're going to walk with God, let God be God in every instance and circumstance of your life. Even in the little things. Even in the, the doing the homework things, going to class things, and the going to jobs, and the, the dealing with how to plan something out or prepare something, how to build something. Whatever it is you do, let God be God over that. Let him be the one that you look to over all those things. Um, that, that is walking in faith. So, so they decide that, you know, let's try it in the spring again, but let's make sure we fight him in the valley. So verse 26. So it was in the spring of, this year, of the year that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions, and they went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. Well, the Syrians filled the countryside. So you get this beautiful picture that, um, they, that were, is described here. Israel's two little flocks of goats. <laughs> and then there's the hillside of Ben-Hadad's army of the Syrians. I, I mean, it's pretty intimidating when you think about that. And sometimes there's definitely things that we face off with in life that seem like insurmountable odds. Well, verse 28 then a man of God, an, an unnamed prophet, he comes, came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, 
But he is not the God of the valleys. Therefore, I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand. And you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite each other for seven days. So it was that on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek, into the city. Then a wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city into the, an inner chamber. So Ben-Hadad, taking his, the advice of his, his, uh, those who he consults, his servants, says, okay, God's only the God of the hills. We'll fight him in the valleys. And uh, the, the, these two little flocks of goats take on this giant, massive multitude. And God once again says, okay, I'm going to show up and look at for the purposes that he decides he will give them victory. The purpose is, and you shall know that I am the Lord. You know, that's an awesome uh, aspect of God's grace. You know, when you think about that, God actually wants his people, Ahab, who's really his enemy, to know that he's the Lord. He, he wants them to know. And, and he even wants you to know that he's the Lord. That, that's a wonderful act of God's grace. And, you know, the definition of God's grace, obviously we recognize that it is God's grace that we can be saved. For by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves. It's by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that Jesus died for us on that cross, taking our sins upon himself, that you and I might have eternal life, that, that you and I might be freed of that debt of sin and given eternal life. It, that's God's grace. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. It's that unmerited favor of God that you and I can receive from God, not because we are good enough, not because we've done something right or pleasing of God, but just because God wants to do it, that God in his love for you has done this marvelous act. And so here, you know, people often say that, well, the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Well, those people don't, have never gotten to know God. They've never walked with God through the Old Testament. They've never walked through God with, in the New Testament. They, they see God as separate. But here is this, God wants the people to know that he is God. And so he's going to deliver them again, and, and we see him do so. The children of Israel, these two flocks of goats, take on and kill, and one day, 100,000 foot soldiers. Then they get them on the run, and they flee to Aphek, and then a wall falls down on 27,000 of them. Can you imagine Ben-Hadad? What kind of a lucky, unlucky day is this? <laughs> you know, he's got to start questioning these things. That God just wants everybody to know that, no, 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 he's the reason they're winning. I'm just going to push down this wall on all these soldiers, and they're all going to die. 27,000 men die from a wall falling over. Uh, that must have been a big wall. <laughs> so <laughs> it must have been not only long and high, uh, 27,000 men. So... It was no accident this wall fell over. And now Ben-Hadad is hiding. Now remember what I said about verse 10? Verse 10, then Ben-Hadad sent it to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also if enough dust is left of Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. I swear by the gods that I'm going to kill you. And, and now he is, here he is on the run and hiding. Well, verse 31 
Then his servants said to him, Look, now we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes, around our heads, and go out to the kings of Israel. Perhaps he will spare uh, the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare our life, your life. So they wore sackcloth around their waists and put ropes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And Ahab said, Is he still alive? He, he, is, he is my brother. So Ahab says, Okay, yeah, make, he's my brother. Let him come out. Uh, so they put, they put on these uh, the sackcloth and these ropes, basically look like, okay, we're utterly defeated. We've got nothing. Th- verse 33, now the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him. And they quickly grasped at this word and said, your brother Ben-Hadad. So he said, go bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him and he had, co- he had him come up to the chariot. So Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities which my father took from your father, I will restore, and you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. Then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he, makes, he made a treaty with him and sent him away. Well, this is not at all what Ahab was supposed to do. Ahab kind of looked at this and took said, you know, this is a good chance for me to make a treaty. And, um, and so now we get into verse 35. Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to the neighbor, by word of the Lord, strike me please. And the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. What? <laughs> All right, there's crazy stuff in the Bible. I, you know, there's weird stuff. And um, I, you guys are all good. Okay, I want to see how Pastor Dave explains this. I have no idea how to explain this at all. I don't understand. It's like, uh, strike me. I can't. Strike me. I can't. All right, fine. A lion's going to eat you. And then it does. <laughs> like, but now, a couple of things I want to say. This First of all, this certain man, the sons of the prophet... We, we know that there are, is this group of individuals that seek to preserve the law of God, to follow God, and that God speaks through. We just don't get names to them. So Elijah and Elisha we get names for, but there's these others, this remnant that God has kept. And they, so he says to strike me. And now I, I wish I could explain this way. I wish maybe that we could see from the text that, well, God gave him a word and said, hey, let the prophet, stri- you strike the prophet. And he was disobedient, whatever the case is. But we do know this, this prophet was speaking on behalf of God. And the man said, no, I can't strike you. I, I got to show you some sort of compassion or whatever. And the prophet says, all right, well, because you won't obey a lion's going to eat you, and then a lion jumps out and eats him. There's, have you noticed that there's lions jumping out and eating people in the kings, in first kings? Like, yeah, that, I don't know. I don't understand it, but we're moving on. Verse 37, we'll see why he wanted him to strike him. And he found another man and said, strike me, please. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. I like this. Hey, can you punch me in the face? You got it, man. Bam. He just laid it on him. And, uh, and by the way, this whole story about lions jumping out and eating people, it makes me really glad we don't live in the Old Testament. 
uh, right? Because uh, I'm, I'm so happy that we don't have to worry about misunderstanding or, you know, anyway, we live in, under grace. So then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road, and he disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. Now as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. While your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. Then the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Now, I want to take a pause for a minute. The, the, the prophet goes to great lengths to set up this scenario to, to uh, kind of do a little bit of, of acting so that he can act out the message that God is giving through him, which... than the prophets of the Old Testament do. So as the prophet gives this message to the king, he sets himself, if would be required, or a talent of silver. I've either got to pay this huge debt. And it, it kind of set, set it up like he's coming to the king and hoping that maybe he can get the king to change his mind about it. And, uh, but notice his reasons for, for not doing it. Uh, he says, I was given this, well, while your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. You know, I just got caught up, a little busy here, a little busy there, and then, oh, well, he was gone, you know. Not, not very good reasons for even not fulfilling his job. Now, the prophet is setting up what Ahab has done. Ahab should have defeated Ben-Hadad and put Ben-Hadad to death, but he chose not to. Saul made the same mistake. Um, and, and we see here that Ahab makes the same mistake. And I want to say this, that God gives us opportunities to fulfill our, the, the job that he gives to us. And saying, hey, I got busy here and there. time, we know that God often puts upon our with somebody, and, and we're like, well, maybe tomorrow. Well, maybe tomorrow. Oh, I got busy here and there, right? But we know God is speaking to us. We know that we know that God has been speaking to us to share the gospel with this person, and we're ah, kind of busy. Or maybe it's not sharing the gospel. Maybe it's some other work of the Lord that God is impressing upon you. And we only have so much time to fulfill the job that God has given to us. So I want to encourage you to do that. Now, I, I think that ultimately the, that, that sort of thing, like for the believers, we get rewarded for being faithful to do what God has called us to do. And, uh, and if we weren't faithful, then we don't get that reward. But, uh, but at the same time, I think we want to make sure that we are faithful with what God impresses upon us. Likewise, Salvation is available now. There's coming a time when salvation will not be available. There's, and, and you don't know if it's that time at which you are called 
out of this life, that you've been, you're, you're dead. And there's no other time by which salvation, that offer of salvation is any longer available to you. And, and no one knows that day or the hour. I was just hearing a story today about a godly saint who fell off a ladder and, and, and died, 62 years old. It was a terrible story about this saint. Uh, and and uh, he went to go help somebody, uh, a family member on the East Coast, and then was supposed to come back and travel the country with his wife, and he fell and, and, and passed away. And uh, it sounded like he was just a wonderful, wonderful saint of the Lord. But, but God knew his day was coming. He didn't know. And you don't know the time or the hour in which God is saying, this is the end. This is where your life stops. You know, you don't know if it's b- via a uh, car accident, you don't know that COVID, all those things that can happen in life that you just go, what? How did that happen? And I want to encourage you that today is the day of salvation. Second Corinthians 6, 1 through 2, Paul says, when then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain, he's speaking to the Corinthian church about how they're being convinced to follow uh, these false teachers. And he's saying, don't do that. Don't receive this false gospel. Verse two, for he says, in an acceptable time, I've heard you. And in the day of salvation, I've helped you. Look at the last part of verse two. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you've been putting off surrendering your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, put it off no longer. Today is that acceptable day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day you should receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, not just putting it off for tomorrow. No, if you know that God has set before you this wonderful invitation of grace, this wonderful invitation to be forgiven of your sins, receive a clean conscience before God, the wonderful invitation of eternal life, not just eternal life, but also an incorruptible body, eternal life with the Lord God. Well, today is that day to receive him. Forget living for all this other stuff and being busy here and there, and therefore I couldn't receive that wonderful gift. No, today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. Well, going on with the story, Ben, uh, uh, King Ahab says, all right, well, so your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. And I, and I, I think that that's so true with salvation, right? People, people, uh, people really decide for themselves whether they want to believe or not. Nobody goes to hell by accident. Nobody is, faces the judgment by accident because God has made himself available to those who seek him. And... Um, and so, so basically King Ahab says, your judgment be yourself as decided. Well, verse 41, and he hastened, that's the prophet, to take the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. Then he said to him, thus says the Lord. Okay, as soon as you see this happening in the Old Testament, you're like, you're in trouble. Uh, thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand the man whom I appointed to utter destruction, Therefore, your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house, Solon, and displeased and came to Samaria. You know, it's crazy that God offered to Ahab this incredible victory for Israel. But Ahab didn't want to do 
what God had given to him to do. Ahab wanted to only follow part of the instruction. He didn't want to surrender everything to God. He said, well, I'm just going to do part of it and it should be good enough. And notice that where he should have been going home to his house with great joy and rejoicing, and it should have been a wonderful celebration, he goes home sullen and displeased because of the fact that he failed to do what God had commanded him to do. Let me encourage you, do not fail to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and surrender him and all of your life to him. And let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this night together, and we thank you for your word and this wonderful story from 1 Kings. Uh, Lord, we just want to surrender all to you. And if you're in this room tonight and you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, or you're like Ahab and you've only done it part way, you've surrendered part of your life, I want to encourage you right now, you give it all to the Lord Jesus Christ, because today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that God has given to you that you might receive his grace. So you pray right now, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Lord, help me to have that eternal life. Give, give me that wonderful gift. And uh, Lord, I, I want to surrender all to you. Forgive me of my sin. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on that cross for me. Lord, we give you the praise. Lord, let us be faithful to do your will, to listen to your Holy Spirit, and not to get busy doing, being here and there. But Lord, to do what you've commanded us to do. We thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we're so happy to have you with us today. Uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Amen.